The Lord be with you. Just over 11 years ago, on December 3rd, 2011, I was ordained as a pastor in Christ's church, and I've got a picture of it here. See if you can figure out which one is me. I'll give you a hint. Look for the, the beginning of the bald spot in the back there. So despite the fact that uh, this was a Lutheran ordination, the Episcopalians let us borrow their cathedral. Actually, if we could go back to that. Uh, so we had this beautiful Gothic cathedral out on Long Island, New York, and the bishop there, his name is Bishop Bob, he's a Lutheran bishop, but I think to compete with all the Episcopalians who are in New York, he felt the need to, to go a little extra, right? He's got his mitre, the hat, and his crozier, the staff there. And what you should know about Bishop Bob is he's already like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, he's a giant of a man. And so when he puts on that hat, he's got close to eight feet of height on him. Say, so this man not only ordained me, but he was the one who called me to New York. He was the one who, when I said, I want to have a crazy idea to start a new ministry based around making art together as a congregation, he said, yes, I believe in you, Ben. I see Jesus calling you to ministry out here, and he invited me out. He gave me that opportunity. And when it came time to ordain me, there were probably two, other, two dozen other pastors who laid hands on me, but he said to everyone, but I need to make sure I get my hand on Ben because I am the one who will be ordaining him. About five years after he ordained me, Bishop Bob was forced to resign in disgrace after it came out that he had had an affair with his secretary. And it was one of these moments where you think to yourself, whoa, I looked up to this, like literally I looked up to this guy. He was the one who saw in me Christ's call. He was the one who discerned the Holy Spirit calling me out here. He was the one who ordained me. What does that mean for my ministry? What does that mean for my ordination? And the question I had in that moment is not a unique question in the history of Christianity. In the year 303, the emperor Diocletian in Rome instigated a major persecution against Christians. And, and basically what was going on is Christians, if you were found out, you were required to renounce your faith, offer a little sacrifice usually of incense on an altar dedicated to Caesar, and also you were met to hand over the sacred scriptures. And if you didn't do these things, you got thrown to the lions. And in the midst of this, many Christians gladly were eaten by lions. In fact, uh, there's a, an ancient theologian called Tertullian who says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because Romans would gather in these stadiums to watch as Christians were killed, violent deaths, but the Christians, they would go to their deaths singing hymns of praise to God, praying for the people who watched them. And the Romans said, these guys really believe something powerful. I want to know more about this. And so martyrs became the rock stars of the ancient church Christians would try to get their bones after they'd been killed to, to venerate them, to say, this person is holy and they can get me in touch with the greater holiness of Jesus. But in the midst of that, there were some Christians who were told, you either have to sacrifice to Caesar or get thrown to the lions, and they said, just put a little incense on this altar? Well, sure, that sounds easy enough. Jesus won't mind. 
Some of those people who refused to renounce Jesus, some of them were priests. Some of them were bishops. They would hand over the scripture to the Roman authorities on Saturday and Sunday morning. They'd show up at church and say, hey guys, I'm ready to lead worship. Who's got a Bible I can borrow? And the congregation would say, whoa, we just saw you renounce Jesus. You're a sinner. How can you be our pastor? How can you be our bishop? And not only that, they would ask themselves, well, wait a minute. You were the one who officiated my wedding. You were the one who buried my father. You were the one who gave my dying wife communion. You were the one who baptized me. All those sacraments, all those promises of God's love in the midst of our lives are are those all now worthless because your faith, your morality, your holiness was a fraud? That was a question in the year 300, but it's a question that's gone throughout history because it comes down to an idea of ministry that's summed up best in the year 600 called the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And I've got it here. This is an icon from Mount Sinai, Monastery in Mount Sinai. And it was made in the year 600, and it's meant to depict monks following each other up a ladder of holiness to Jesus at the very top. I don't know if you can see him at the very top of the ladder. That's Jesus reaching to welcome the monks in. And the idea is, if you're on the lowest rung, you look to the monk above you, and you follow him up to his rung. And then you follow the next monk. And each person who is holier than you helps you get to the next rung of the ladder until at last you can get up to Jesus, and you can avoid all the little demons trying to tear you down. You can see him there. That ladder of divine ascent, we may not use that language anymore, but that idea of of someone who is holier than you, teaching you how to be holy so that you can be right with God is as prevalent in every moment of history. It might have been monks and martyrs in the ancient church. Today it's gurus and celebrity pastors. But for all of us, there comes a moment when it turns out that our celebrity pastor is Ted Haggard or Mark Driscoll. Or it turns out that that monk that we look up to turned over the scriptures last Saturday. Or the bishop who ordained us was sleeping with his secretary. And in that moment, we start to ask ourselves, well, did it all mean anything? Was it real? What is ministry if the person who is leading the ministry is no more perfect than anyone else in the room. And that's the question in Matthew chapter 4. Because remember, John the Baptist, he's been haranguing the crowds, telling them to repent, to get right with God, because if they don't bear spiritual fruit, the axe is coming for them, you brood of vipers. And so people are coming to him, they're confessing their sins, they're repenting, and he's baptizing them. He's helping them up that spiritual ladder until who shows up to be baptized? Well, it's Jesus. And suddenly John has a problem. Because if the idea is he can help people get holy because he's holier than him, that idea doesn't work when the Son of God shows up. He can't help Jesus up the spiritual ladder. Jesus is at the top of it. And yet Jesus says to him, Okay, John, time to baptize me. And John says, Wait a minute. I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me 
And Jesus' response is to say, let it be so now. For in this way, we fulfill all righteousness. And that word, righteousness, I want to take a moment to think about what it means. Because in Greek, the word for righteousness and the word for justice, they're the same word. Righteousness and justice are the same word. Dikaiosune. Don't need to remember that. Just know, righteous and justice, the same word. And it means, right, to be fulfilling the law. And the idea is, well, all law should come from God. That's not the idea these days, right? But the idea in the ancient world is that all law should come from God. And so if you're fulfilling the law, you're right with God. And you're right with the legal system. And our translators today, because we don't really think of righteousness and justice as the same, they tend to translate the same word as righteousness when it has to deal with an individual, and they tend to translate it as justice when it has to do with a community. Right? So you can think of a justice as a community that is living out God's righteousness. And to say in this moment, Jesus says, Hey, John, you may not be as perfect or as holy as I am, but you baptizing me fulfills all righteousness. And so let's ask what that means. How does it fulfill God's will? And let's look at the three things, the three main things that happen when John baptizes Jesus. The first thing that happens when John baptizes Jesus is it says the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit descends and alights on Jesus like a dove. And God says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. To say, Jesus was God's son before his baptism. Holy Spirit was with Jesus before his baptism. God was well pleased with Jesus before his baptism. But how was the world to know this? How was Jesus to be sure of this? John baptizing Jesus gives God an opportunity to reveal to the whole world that Jesus Christ is God's beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. And baptism gives each and every one of us the same opportunity to know that we too are God's beloved children. When we baptize someone else, we see that they are God's beloved children. We see that they are God's beloved children, not because they have climbed themselves up some spiritual ladder, but because God has descended like the Holy Spirit as a dove and come down to where they are. That Jesus is God's love made manifest here so we don't have to get up somewhere else. That is what is revealed in baptism. Not John's goodness, but God's goodness. And in this way, all righteousness is fulfilled because when we know that we are God's beloved children, when we know that each and every other person is God's beloved children, in that moment, everything is right with God. So that's the first thing that happens. Jesus is revealed to be God's beloved Son. The second thing that happens when Jesus is baptized by John, is he begins his public ministry. We know very little about the majority of Jesus' life. He doesn't start his public ministry until age 30. What's he doing before then? I don't know. He probably wasn't sinning, though. Yeah? Which is curious, because John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. So why in the world would Jesus need to receive a baptism of repentance? Well, let's pause for a moment and think about what repentance means. So in Greek, it's metanoia, which literally means to change your mind. 
In Hebrew, it means to, to turn yourself toward. Right? Repentance is changing your mind and turning yourself towards God. Who knows what Jesus was doing for those first 30 years, but it wasn't public ministry. When he is baptized, in this baptism of repentance, Jesus is changing his mind and turning himself to something new, to this public ministry to which God is calling him. Jesus repents. We start our worship with confession and forgiveness, not because we're all terrible people who have been doing horrific crimes all week long, but because if Jesus can acknowledge, hey, I need to change my mind and set my heart on something new right now, how much more so should each of us each week acknowledge, my mind maybe hasn't been on what's most important. Time for me to change it. Time for me to point my heart towards God once more. And in this way, we fulfill all righteousness. The third thing that happens when Jesus is baptized is that John steps out of the spotlight. Right in Matthew chapter 4, John is the main character. Crowds are rushing to him. And historically, secular historians of this time write way more about John the Baptist than they do about Jesus. But when John baptizes Jesus, after that moment, he becomes at best a side character. He becomes a footnote. When John baptizes Jesus, it's clear that it's not John who's Jesus' guide. It's God. And in this way, this baptism fulfills all righteousness because ministry isn't about how good the minister is. Ministry is about how good God is. And in fact, disappearing... That's kind of what we're supposed to do as ministers. We're supposed to let people see Jesus instead of us. So I got this fancy outfit, and I know it's hard to be like, you're disappearing when you wear that. But here's the deal, right? The uniform is meant to make you see not the wearer, but the office. This is true for any uniform, whether that's the uniform of a police officer, of a judge. The goal is when you see a person in uniform, you don't see the person, you see the office that they are fulfilling. And the goal with this uniform in particular is meant to point out that I am not the important person here, Jesus is. So my base layer, right, it's all black, except for one little strip of white at my throat. And the point of that is to say, hey, the guy who's wearing this outfit, he's a sinner through and through. But that little strip of white at his throat is a reminder that no matter his sin, he is still capable of speaking the good news of God's love to you. The next layer I got, this white robe, it's called an alb. Yeah, alb, like albino, it means white. And the white robe, it comes from the early days of the church when people would gather together, some of them rich, some of them poor, some of them slaves, some of them free. And in the ancient world, like today, you could tell a lot about a person by the clothes they wore. And the early Christians said, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about each other's social status or each other's wealth in this moment. We should be thinking about each other as the body of Christ. And so they all started to just wear the same robe over whatever else they had on. So that when you looked at the person, all you would see was a clean, simple, pure robe. You'd see Jesus instead of them. And over that, I have what's called the chasuble. You don't need to remember that. And the point of the chasuble is to say, well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We're going to celebrate communion. 
Someone has to put together the food. Someone has to set the table. And so the chasuble comes to represent the person who's just wearing the apron in the kitchen, right? When I put this on, I'm supposed to remind you of a line cook. Yeah? I got a picture here. Right? We have basically the same outfit. Yeah? And I will tell you what, when you go to a diner and you order a burger, no one thinks, I wonder about the moral quality of my line cook. No! Right? Like, the line cook doesn't need to be so holy as to create, like, a, a cow whole cloth. God has already done that. The line cook doesn't even need to have the culinary genius to create a fancy new burger and culinary experience for you. No, the chef has done that. The line cook just needs to put the ingredients together. And he's there at that time and that place, and so he does it. And the same is true with those of us in ministry. John the Baptist may be the one who dunks Jesus in the water, But when Jesus rises out of the water, it is God who opens the heavens. It is God who sends the Holy Spirit. It is God who says, this is my child, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. John may dunk Jesus in the water, but it's God who baptizes. And that's what the ancient church realized. The ancient church realized, wait a minute. Yeah, that priest who renounced may have baptized me, or that bishop may have consecrated me, at least physically, right? Their hands may have given me the bread or put me in the water. But they weren't the ones who did the miracle. They weren't the ones who made the promise. It was God. God was the one who baptized me. God was the one who gave me communion. God was the one who bound my spouse and I together in marriage. And so... The group of people who said, no, our priests have to be perfect, otherwise their sacraments are invalid. Those people were declared heretics. It's my favorite heresy, honestly. Donatism is what it's called. This idea that your priest has to be perfect, your pastor has to be perfect for their ministry to be meaningful. The rest of the church said, no, they're just the line cook taking orders. God's the chef. God's the one who makes the magic and the miracles happen. And so sometimes people will come to our congregation and say, hey, pastor, I'm ready to join your church and I want to be baptized. And I say, great, have you ever been baptized before? And they'll say, yeah, but I don't like that church anymore. You know, the pastor kind of rubs me the wrong way. So I want to be baptized here. And I'll say, it wasn't the pastor who baptized you. It wasn't the congregation. It was God who baptized you. It was Jesus. Jesus' promises are valid and good. Those haven't changed an inch. You don't need to be baptized again. But we can certainly remember it together. And in the same way, I realized I didn't need to be ordained again. My call to ministry wasn't from this bishop. It was from Jesus. The person who ordained me wasn't this bishop. It was Jesus. And yes, Jesus may have worked through this bishop, just as Jesus worked through the priests who renounced years ago, just as Jesus works through John the Baptist. But Jesus asks John the Baptist to baptize him, not because John the Baptist is holier than Jesus. John asks Jesus to baptize him because John is there, willing to do the work. Because when Jesus says, will you baptize me, John may have a moment of doubt, but at the end of the day, John says, yes, I will do it. 
And so it is with each and every single one of us. The prophet Isaiah today, we hear him describe God's chosen servant, a servant who will bring forth justice, not with shouting or strength, but with gentleness. We hear the prophet Isaiah describe God's chosen servant who is called in righteousness. Righteousness not because that servant knows all of God's paths, but because God takes that servant by the hand and leads them. And Isaiah says there's two qualifications for that servant. The first is that God delights in them. And the second is that God's spirit is upon them. And both of those qualifications are fulfilled in baptism. For in baptism, the same promises that are given to Jesus are given to each and every single one of us. The Holy Spirit descends upon us like a dove, And the words from heaven say, This is my child, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. God delights in you, friends. You are God's beloved. God's Spirit is poured out upon you. You are called to be God's servant, to do ministry in this world, not because you are holier than anyone else, but because God is so holy that God can use you to reveal to everyone else that they are God's beloved children also. You may never hold a church title or wear a fancy robe, but you have the greatest calling any Christian can have, that as a beloved child of God, upon whose spirit God is poured out, in whom God delights. You are God's chosen servant, called to reveal God's goodness and God's love for each and every child of God. May we hear that calling to ministry. And may we say yes each and every day. Amen.